and welcome to another installment of Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to delve into the book of 1 Thessalonians. That's Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. I thank you for joining us, and let me give a welcome to our listeners in Columbus, Ohio. Good to have you with us. I have some connection to Ohio. My dad's from Zanesville, but I've never been to Ohio. But it's good to have you with us anyway. Well, to all that are joining us today, thank you and welcome. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dig into the text this morning. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we turn our hearts and our attention to you and your word. Lord, as we spend this time together studying your word, we ask that you would speak to us. Father, that your spirit would speak to our hearts convicting us of those areas that we need to repent of and turn to you. And Father, showing us the way to walk with you, to reflect your presence in this world. Lord, help us to take both encouragement and correction from your word today as we study it, as we seek to understand it, And Lord, we thank you that your word never returns void, that it always has the effect you intend it to. And most of all, we thank you for your word incarnate. We thank you for Christ, for his sacrifice on the cross and the salvation that he brings. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention to the text of 1 Thessalonians, we need to look at a little bit of background. First off, where is this place? Well, Macedonia is the northern half of Greece. Now, not modern Greece. There's an area called Macedonia that's separate from Greece today. But Greece was basically divided into Achaia, which was the southern part, and Macedonia, the northern part. And Thessalonica was one of the prominent cities in the northern part of Greece. Uh, Macedonia was the province where Alexander the Great's father was from. Um, so there's there's history there. But it was early on conquered by Rome and was included in the Roman Empire to such an extent that Thessalonica was seen as a, well, basically a a city that was an extension of Rome. It was, was the type of city that had certain privileges. A lot of Roman citizens settled there. Uh, They were exempt from paying taxes to Rome. They didn't have to garrison troops within the city. Uh, You know, there were various things like that, that shaped the city. Now, it was a multi-ethnic city. You had Macedonians, you had Romans, you had Greeks, you had uh, Jews and Persians. You had all these different groups that were either residing there or passing through there. So there was a lot of diversity. And we know from Scripture that there was a synagogue there, as we see, oh, I believe it was in Acts, uh, was it chapter 17, I think? Somewhere about there. Uh, in Acts, where we see Paul first preaching in the synagogue there and and some of the uh, Jews converting to Christianity. But indications are that the majority of the believers that make up the Thessalonica church are really Macedonian or Roman background. So they're coming out of a 
pluralistic, uh, multiple deity pagan background into the Christian faith. That becomes significant as we look at what's going on in the church at Thessalonica. They were a young church. By the time Paul is writing this letter to them, they're, you know, maybe a couple years old. This probably was written around 51 uh, AD from maybe Corinth or Athens, while Paul is down in, in the southern part of Greece ministering there. He had been longing to go back up to Thessalonica, but as he attributes it, Satan was blocking that. There were circumstances at play that kept him from being able to do that. He felt that was was Satan preventing him from doing that. Um, but he had a real compassion for this church because his ministry, once the church was started there, only lasted two or three months until the Jews that did not accept Christ stirred up trouble and made some accusations against the apostles related to causing civil unrest. And if you know anything about Roman history, one of the greatest, uh, dare I say, sins against the Roman Empire was causing civil unrest. So, I mean, if you could levy that charge against somebody and have any evidence of it, you could pretty much get them driven out of town, if not executed. So we see Paul being driven out of town. And here we have this church of new converts, most of which don't even have the background of the Old Testament. They're coming out of a complete pagan background. And now the individual that led them to faith in Christ is gone after a few months, and they're a church. Well, you can imagine there's probably not a lot of theological depth to that church. There's not a lot of background. There's not a lot of time for Paul to work with them and develop leaders and establish people in key positions that can foster the growth of the church and the health. I mean, by growth, I don't mean just numeric growth of the individuals. I mean, the depth of, of spiritual growth in the individuals that are there, the discipleship. Um, there's, there's just not that background there. Add to that the persecution that the church was under from both uh, the pagans and the Jews. So this was a young church. It didn't have a lot of theological depth and it was experiencing persecution. Paul was worried about this church. Well, ultimately Paul, when he was in Athens was able to send Timothy up to Thessalonica to see about the church and to take care of things there, even though he himself was not able to go. So he sends Timothy Timothy later, at the occasion of the writing of 1 Thessalonians, has now traveled back down to Corinth, where Paul is at this point, and shares with him a report on the church at Thessalonica. And it's a great report. And there are still some issues, and Paul addresses those in this letter. The biggest concern had to do with the return of Christ and uh, what about those that have, have passed from this life. How, how do we handle that? What's that mean? Didn't think that was supposed to happen. We'll unpack that along oh, about chapter four. But Paul is celebrating when he writes this letter because the report he gets back, I don't think matched up with his concerns and fears for the church. Even though they were young in their faith, even though they didn't have that great depth even though they were experiencing persecution, 
they had held on. And they had held fast to the gospel. And were living it out. That's a great reminder for us to stop and pause. And realize that it's not our efforts. It's not our churches, their programs. It's not any of that. It's not a favorable environment or an environment of persecution that causes the church to grow and to thrive. It is the power of God at work in the lives of believers. And that can happen anywhere and everywhere. During this pandemic, many churches have had cause to cease meeting in person. And I know that's been a challenge for a lot of folks. Believe me, as a pastor, it is not easy preaching to a camera in an empty sanctuary. But it has helped us understand where the power of the church is. It's not inside these walls. It's inside the hearts and lives of believers. It is the indwelling presence of Christ. The church is the people. Now, as the people of God, we need to be the church. The church at Thessalonica is a great example. Even with the questions and issues they had, they were a tremendous example. And so Paul begins his letter in the way he does all of his letters. It's a standard format for letters. We've discussed that multiple times as we've looked at various epistles. And the first chapter in its entirety, it's a whopping 10 verses. The first chapter is the standard opening of a letter. It is the greeting and the thanksgiving that are expressed at the beginning of any letter in the Greco-Roman world in the first century. Uh, but they're specific from Paul and to the people he's writing to. So we're going to unpack that as we begin to turn our attention to the first chapter. So Paul begins like this in verse 1. He says, this letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Now, why is that significant? And if you're a purist, okay, it says Silvanus, um, which is the Greek form of Silas, okay? But Paul, Silas, and Timothy, why does he mention it's from the three of them? Well, if we go back over to the book of Acts, and we look in, oh, say, well, Acts chapter 17, we find in Acts 17... The three guys that are there at the beginning, the three guys that take the gospel to Thessalonica are, wait for it, here it is, Paul, Silas, Timothy. Yeah. Paul's saying, look, this letter is not just from me. It's from all three of us that God used to start the spread of the gospel in your town. The three that came in and began declaring the gospel that led to the formation of this church. This letter is from Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We are writing to the church in Thessalonica, to you who belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. May God give you grace and peace. So there's your, your greeting. And now as we move on to the second verse, he begins his, his, his expression of thanksgiving for the church. He says, we thank God 
for all of you and pray for you constantly. Now, does he mean 24 hours a day, seven days a week? They're only praying for the church at Thessalon? No. But every time they do pray for them, every time they're gathered praying for believers, they're including the church at Thessalonica. Do they spend time intensely praying for the church at Thessalonica? Well, I think definitely. Busy expressing, look, you're on our hearts, you're on our minds, and we are lifting you in prayer. And he goes on to explain that prayer a little. He says, and, or excuse me, in verse three, as we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds, and the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I mentioned they were a predominantly Gentile background church coming out of a, a Greco-Roman pantheon of, of pagan gods. Understand, there was a there was a family history there. There was um, almost a sense of ancestral gods, especially given where they were from. I mean, they were seen to be deities over certain areas, and if your family lineage was from a certain area then you would have had an affinity towards worship of that God. That would be kind of an ancestral God to you. These folks walked away from that. And in so doing, they not only walked away from their history, they walked away from their, in many regards, their families and their communities. Just like Jews who converted to Christianity usually became ostracized from the Jewish community, understanding that family life, uh, the Jewish relational connection of family, was a lifeline in that day and age. That your commerce, that you shopped at, at Jewish vendors and you sold to Jewish customers and you fellowshiped with other Jews and you... you socialized with other Jews. But when you became a Christian, you became ostracized from that. You became cut off from all of that, beginning to get an idea of what the cost of following Christ was. Well, it wasn't all that much different for the pagans either. If you, in their eyes, turned your back on the history of worship of these pagan gods then folks didn't want to associate with you. And in fact, they wanted to make your life miserable, kind of so you might turn back. And also because they felt they had a duty to these gods or a sense that if we associate with you or we don't try to straighten you out, then this ancestral God's going to get mad with us and curse us. And we don't want that. I mean, there were, there were lots of things at play here. But I, I want you to try to grasp a little bit of what it was for the members of the church at Thessalonica. They had lost so much to gain the support and fellowship of the other believers. And most importantly, to receive that grace and peace that comes from God. So when Paul talks to them, 
and says that as we pray to our God and Father about you, we think of your faithful work. Understand how hard that faithful work was for them. Your loving deeds. Think of how much that was a lifeline for them. And the enduring hope you have because of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were so committed to Christ. They trusted in him so completely that they were willing to suffer all that it was costing them. Now, if in those first three verses of the chapter one of First Thessalonica, or First Thessalonians, you aren't challenged, then you're not paying attention. Given their situation and what they dealt with, and look at what they did with it. I find that challenging because I tell you, it's fairly easy in my life to be a Christian. Oh yeah. There are people that talk down about Christians or, or, you know, give a little bit of hassle about it. But the reality is I don't experience any massive persecution for my faith in Christ. So what's my excuse? It's a challenge. Well, in verse four, he says, we know dear brothers and sisters that God loves you and has chosen you to be his own people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words, but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering that it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example to all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia and Achaia. Well, he points out something there, something he impacts elsewhere when he talks about being joined in the suffering of Christ. Here he's saying, look, you know, you, you responded, you saw the power of God, you heard the message of the gospel. And you saw it with the power or with power for the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. So you were convicted that it was true. And you know of our concern, the way we lived when we were with you. You received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of severe suffering. You knew it was going to cost. You would suffer. And yet with joy, you responded. He says, in this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. See, Paul and his companions had suffered for the gospel. They would suffer more for the gospel. Ultimately, Paul would be beheaded in Rome for the gospel. And Christ 
hung on the cross to bring us that message of good news, to provide that way of salvation, to atone for our sins. So in clinging to the gospel, in living out joy in the Holy Spirit in response to the gospel, they are in good company with the apostles and with Christ himself because they are imitating both in their willingness to hold what was true, to hold to the gospel of Christ, even at what seems like great cost. Because ultimately, what's the greater cost? Suffering for the sake of clinging to Christ or giving up on Christ? One of them will cost you eternity. The other will gain you eternity. Now we get to verse 8. And he says, And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. We don't need to tell them about it, for they keep talking about the wonderful welcome that you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, remember back in verse 7, in this way you imitated both us and the Lord. As a result, you have become an example for all the believers in Greece throughout Macedonia. That's northern and southern Greece. Everybody's heard about you. Remember when we started all of this, I explained to you that Thessalonica was situated in Macedonia. It was a key city. It held a, a special place in relationship with Rome. And as such, many Romans settled there, but there were people from all cultures and nationalities that came through there. It was a trade city, not, not as wealthy or influential as maybe Corinth, but people traveling, well, all over the Roman Empire if they were traveling by land, traveled through Macedonia and Thessalonica. So as a result, word began to spread. I mean, if you were coming by land from Italy, Rome, over to Greece, any part of Greece, you probably went through Thessalonica. And if you were traveling from Rome, even over into Asia Minor, you probably went through there. Well, Thus, word spread. How they were living, how this infant church, with two, maybe three months of discipling under their belt, and nobody with more than two or three months' experience walking with the Lord, holding on for two, maybe three years, under persecution, and what does their reputation look like? And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere, even beyond Macedonia and Achaia. For wherever we go, we find people telling us about your faith in God. You've got a reputation. That's what Paul's telling them. You've got a reputation, and it's a good one. Because people are telling us about your faith in God. People 
all over are telling us. The word of the Lord is ringing out from you. Oh, that the apostle could describe us that way. Is the word of God ringing out from your life, from your congregation? Is it ringing out from each one of us the way it should? When scripture talks about us having a good reputation, in fact, Paul will talk about it in his letters, us having a good reputation. He's not saying that everybody in town likes us. I mean, let's face it, the Thessalonians were under severe persecution. People did not like them. People didn't go, oh, they're such kind people. Let's be nice to them. No. It was they forsaken our gods. Let's destroy them. Well, sometimes we think a good reputation in our community means that we don't upset anybody and we don't take a stand for anything. But when Paul talks good reputation, he's talking about being grounded in Christ. He is talking about the word of the Lord ringing out from your life so that people everywhere, most especially believers everywhere, are acknowledging that they see Christ in you. And if they who know to recognize it see it in you, then those that are seeking him will see it. It doesn't mean there's not going to be persecution. It doesn't mean everybody's going to like you and approve of what you do, what you say, or who you are. The only approval you need there is from Christ. But let his word ring out from you so that all will hear. Well, again, picking up partway through verse 8, or yeah, the tail end of verse 8. We don't need to tell you about it. Don't need to tell you about your reputation. For they keep, or we don't need to tell them about it, sorry. We don't need to tell them about the gospel because your reputation. For they keep talking about the wonderful welcome that you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. When we're willing to suffer for our faith in Christ, when we're willing to endure hardship, when we're willing to go against what our society, our families, our social groups view is for the sake of being true to following God, it makes us different and different in a good way. They keep talking about the wonderful welcome you gave us and how you turned away from idols to serve the living and true God. And they speak of how you are looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven, Jesus whom God has raised from the dead. He is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. So they are showing in their own lives, faithful work, loving deeds, enduring hope, and it costs them. But they are enduring persecution in such a way that the word of the Lord is ringing out from their lives. And their reputation is so much so that they have turned away from their idols. They have 
clung to the living and true God. And they are looking forward to the coming of the Son of God, of Jesus, whom God raised from the dead. Why? Because he is the one who rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. Now, for us as believers, the coming judgment is not terror. But for those that have not turned to Christ, it will be terror. In the book of Isaiah, it's repeatedly described as the great and terrible day of the Lord. Understand, it's going to be great for those that know him, and it is going to be terrible for those that do not. Because it will be it will be facing the ultimate reality of what their eternity will be. And knowing that it didn't have to be that way. But they rejected the message of salvation. For us that know Christ, it is the culmination of our embracing that message of salvation. Well, folks, that's the foundation. That is the the introduction to 1 Thessalonians just in those 10 verses, but Paul says so much and reminds us of the necessity of clinging to Christ so that we can easily walk away from this passage with that question ringing in our ears. Does the word of the Lord ring out from our lives? I hope the answer is yes. But if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, I can tell you the answer ought to be yes. And if it's not, don't use the excuses, well, I haven't known him long enough, well, I don't know enough. This is a church that was discipled for two, three months, and that was it. Look at what they accomplished. So in light of all we've seen in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, let's turn our attention again to the Lord in prayer. Join me. Father, we pray that you would take us and that you would use us. Father, that our reputation would be that reputation which this church we are reading about had that the truth of your word would ring out from our lives and that we would be so empowered by the Holy Spirit, that we would be so in love with your gospel, so in love with Christ, that it would dominate our lives, that we would not shy away from proclaiming you or worshiping you based on difficulty or persecution, or what we lack, because what we have is so much greater. And Father, that we would live not constantly looking back, but constantly looking forward to that day, that great and terrible day, that day when we will see Christ at his return. Lord, help us to have 
that kind of perspective. And may it govern every aspect of our lives as we seek to follow you and to glorify you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.